Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to Travel First with Chris Coleman and Alex First. Welcome along to Travel First, where we take a look at the grand and the quirky, just anywhere we feel like going. Isn't it wonderful to have a podcast that takes us where we fancy? And I'm Alex First. The journey with me is taken each week by Chris Coleman. G'day, Chris. Isn't it great? We can go wherever we want. It, it is the wonders of technology that we can virtually be anywhere that we virtually want. We're exactly so. And we, we're talking this week after the first week of the Olympic Games. So we're talking about Rio. Rio is a place that I have not yet visited but would love to someday. I know that a number of people have stayed away because of the Zika virus and because of the water and all sorts of other things that haven't gone quite according to plan. But the visuals on television makes the place look absolutely sensational. Do you not want to go there one day? I'd love to go to Rio. Uh, and one of the gold medals that uh, one of the Australian athletes won, it was um, uh, the, the rower whose the name escapes yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, at her medal presentation, there was a magnificent shot, and I don't know whether you saw this, where uh-huh. they, they shot from low down behind the dais. So you saw the athletes with, who'd received their gold medals uh, from behind, and then in the background of that shot, there was Christ the Redeemer and a bit of the city yeah. skyline. It was a truly remarkable shot, and suddenly made you realise just how breathtakingly beautiful some of Rio is. Oh, but even looking down the course when they were rowing, when they, when when they, the, the single skulls was on that that to me just what a breathtaking portrait of a great city i mean it just sort of really got my juices boiling thinking oh gee wouldn't it be great to be there i i'm afraid that we're not going to go to rio today but we are going to go to paris which is one of the greatest countries or one of the greatest cities in one of the greatest countries in the world and last week we were talking about switzerland and what a great place that is really brilliant absolutely breathtaking to go through the mountains the swiss alps by train is one of the greatest experiences of my life well we'd we'd gone to various places we'd gone to three cities in three days so that's not the way to see switzerland you need to have weeks rather than days but i i have to say to you there was another rail europe journey so go to eurail.com.au as i've said to you many times on this podcast australians punch above our weight. We have more train journeys per capita on Rail Europe than any other nationality on the face of the earth. So we took another Rail Europe journey from Montreux to Geneva. And um, then within 10 minutes of getting on the train, it started snowing. So what a great way to come back in, you know, from other places or places further afield within Switzerland. And is is it Geneva, possible for us to arrange that for anyone else taking that train journey that they can get on the train and the snow starts 10 minutes later? You have to be a very special person. Okay, first. all right. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, as long as you can accept that, that's okay. Some people it'll happen for. 
So, you know, start doing your, your due duties and, and work hard and, and maybe you'll get the reward. At Geneva, we chained trains and we caught the TGV. I'll do that again. The TGV, which is the fast train from Geneva to Paris. So just check that out, TGV. And again, you can check all of this out on raileurope.com.au. We then caught public transport to our hotel. We stayed at the Hotel Royal Elise. We had a room on the fourth floor of a five-storey establishment with a balcony that gave us a view of the Arc de Triomphe. I thought that was pretty reasonable. Now, the Arc de Triomphe, Chris, you'll remember this from your time in Paris, 12 roads running from it and cars seemingly moving in all directions. I tried to cross the roundabout unaware that there were tunnels. Oh, golly. Uh, The first thing we looked at each morning was that. It was exactly 12 (laughs) roads running to the Arc de Triomphe. What a great introduction to Paris. And by the way, it it was only a three-minute walk to the Champs-Élysées from our hotel. So we could not have asked for a better location. Hotel Royal Elysée, E-L-Y-S-E-E-S. And it's been a boutique hotel for more than 150 years, got only 35 rooms, 20 twins and 15 doubles. And its current owner is a private individual who bought the place in 1989. The maximum number of people it can accommodate is 58. So it caters to both the leisure and the business traveller. The front office manager, who is really nice, called Zaid Abel, A-B-E-L, tells me the average leisure stay is three to four days. Business travellers usually bed down for a couple of days. With the Arc de Triomphe literally metres from our front door, it was the natural place to start a tour of Paris. What a beacon and a draw card it is. And it stands at the western end of Paris's most famous boulevard, I've already mentioned, the Champs-Élysées. The Arc honours those who fought and died for France in the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, with the names of all French victories and generals inscribed on its inner and outer surfaces. And beneath its vault lies the tomb of the unknown soldier from the First World War. As I've said already... 12 Avenues, this is the centre of 12 Avenues, commissioned in 1806 after the victory at Austerlitz by Emperor Napoleon at the peak of his fortunes. And it took a couple of years just to lay the foundations, inspired by the Roman Arch of Titus. 50 metres high, 45 metres wide, 22 metres deep. And it was built on such a large scale that three weeks after the Paris Victory Parade in 1919, marking the end of hostilities in World War I, Charles Godfroy flew his biplane through it. And that event was captured on Newsreel, flew through the Arc de Triomphe. I climbed to the top, had a very, very impressive 360-degree view of Paris. So that was my introduction to Paris this time round. I've been before and I love going back to Paris. On three of our five days in Paris, my wife had lunch or dinner in a U-Butte little Lebanese eatery called Yamir, Y-A-M-I-R. It only opened in December 2014. What caught our eye through the window as we're about to walk past it is how beautifully presented the small space is. It's got 20-something foods in pristine white porcelain dishes making such a positive impression behind all this spotless glass. The place is run by Elmir Ahmad, 
who's insured his food is not only fresh but extremely well priced. Because bear in mind that when you're converting euros to Aussie dollars, it's not you know it's not the same currency. You no. are paying <laughs> right. So to give you an idea, my wife's meals cost between seven dollars fifty and ten dollars for a meal. I thought that was fantastic in Paris. No, really, really good. It's Yamir, Y-A, separate word, M-I-R, located at 71 Kleber Avenue, which is pretty close to the Eiffel Tower. We may as well talk about the Eiffel Tower. Named after Gustav Eiffel, brilliant engineer whose company built it. And it was erected as the entrance arch to 1889 World Fair, the 1889 World Fair. After discussion about a suitable centrepiece for the event that would celebrate the centennial of the French Revolution. Can you believe it was initially criticised by some of France's leading artists and intellectuals for its design? But, Pat, but Alex, it was different. And different is always bad, and different always draws oh, criticism at the time. Oh, you just cannot believe it. Of course, it's since become a global cultural icon of France and one of the most recognisable edifices in the world. The tower is the tallest structure in Paris, the most visited paid monument in the world, right? So to give you some idea, we've got about 7 million people visiting it each year. You, know, and it's, you mentioned that it, it, it is the tallest structure in Paris, and that's the thing, it has had such a dramatic impact on the planning laws of Paris as well because... For years and years, uh, the the planning restrictions in Paris have been about 37 metres for new buildings in the city limits. Yes. Now, well, it stands out like a beacon, and it should. Yeah, so, That's so right. It, it means that you get the Eiffel Tower, uh, uh, Sacre Coeur Basilica, Notre Dame, and the Arc de Triomphe, and they stand out because they are tall, and you can see them from such a long way away. Now, there have been some changes... But interestingly, and I remember looking this up at a previous time when we were talking about Paris, there was a proposal about 15 years ago for a 180-metre glass-covered skyscraper to go up. Mm-hmm. And then it actually got challenged in the courts, and I think even UNESCO bought into it and said, no, you can't do this, and it was only oh, 12, 18 months ago, if that that they decided, no, we're not going to go ahead with this thing. So they really take their their low-rise cityscape very seriously across Paris. I'm delighted by that because the the, the footprint that every city has, yes, I understand it can change, but if if something ever dwarfs the Eiffel Tower, I think that will be a very sad day because it is such a recognisable edifice. I mean, the tower is 324 metres, which is... 1,063 feet in the old scale tall, about the same height as an 81-storey building. That gives you some sort of idea. During its construction, it surpassed the Washington Monument to assume the title of the tallest man-made structure in the world. And it held that title for 41 years until they built the Chrysler Building in New York City. That was in 1930. And because of the addition of the aerial atop the Eiffel Tower in 1957, guess what? It's now taller than the Chrysler Building. (laughs) By 5.2 metres. It's important I mention the 5.2. So it's 17 feet taller than the Chrysler Building in New York. Three levels for visitors, by the way, the Eiffel Tower, with restaurants on the first and second. And the third level observatory's upper platform is 906 feet or 276 metres above the ground. So bear in mind, 
276 metres, the tower itself 324 metres. We spent six hours on the Eiffel Tower, Chris. Right? <laughs> why would you spend six hours on the Eiffel Tower? You well, why, why would you spend six hours on, on the Eiffel Tower, Alex? Well, Chris, because it's there and because we were there. Now, while the highest level was closed for maintenance, the second level still provided breathtaking views of Paris. Now, I climbed up the six to 700 steps. My wife caught the lift, although she, she did walk down. Wow, what a legacy Gustave Eiffel has left the world. We, we walked around and around capturing still and moving pictures for hour after hour, and this is the reason we stayed there for six hours. Firstly, by day, then we decided to watch the sunset. What a great experience that was. And finally, by night, as the lights of Paris took over. So we deliberately went up at a particular time, knowing we were going to be there for a long, long while. So then, there is nothing better, actually, I think, or there are very few things better than being in a tower, sorry, in a, in a city with an observation tower and being up there at sunset. I did the same thing in Tokyo at the Sky Tree. Yes. And, yeah, I highly recommend it. If, if you can't make the Eiffel Tower, even if you're just in, in Australia, do it from the, the, the Eureka Sky Deck or do it from uh, the tower in Sydney, the, 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 the Centrepoint Tower in Sydney or, or the, the Telstra Tower in Canberra. Get up there an hour, an hour and a half before sunset and watch as because the whole, the whole scape below you changes. Yeah, it does. No question about it at all. I remember when we were in Dubai, we went up twice, right, the world's tallest. We went up there once by day and once by night for just so that we could see it all just by sunset and then stayed on in the evening. I think it's a great way of doing something. I wholeheartedly agree. Our parting gesture, we walked down to the first level where during winter they have an ice rink on the Eiffel Tower, an ice rink, absolutely free. We spent another 40 minutes on the ice rink. We skated on the Eiffel Tower. Well, why they, not? Well, they give you skates and you're on your way, right? I mean, that because you pay your entrance fee to the Eiffel Tower and, yeah, if you happen to go in winter and... Why not? And and if you if you are like me, Chris, you are clumsy on ice, <laughs> very clumsy on ice. You do get a few props, like chairs and what look like, like they look like penguins that you can hold on to to maintain your balance. I think they're designed for children, Chris. Um, yeah, uh, the fact that I swatted a few kids out the way, you don't, we don't have to mention that, do we? No, no, absolutely no. not. No, 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 no. It was actually. I desperately needed them. My wife's a good ice skater. I am not. Incidentally, the prices for entry to the Eiffel Tower, now, just to give you some idea, well, this was now nearly a year and a half ago. It was five euros to walk up to the second level. That's about $7.50, nine euros or $14.50 to catch the lift. I think that's very, very reasonable. And, And just like we did, you can stay as long as you like. So there's no compulsion to come down at any time you know, nobody's sort of saying oh well move on move on uh, certainly no pressure on you whatsoever and when it is open a full adult ticket I'm talking about to the third level and obviously during winter it was was closed for maintenance but during summer etc and and I presume spring and autumn a full adult ticket is 15 euros 50 or about 23 dollars to get to the top now if you've already walked to the second level like I did you can buy another ticket for €6.50 or about 10 bucks to take the lift to the highest level. And apart from the prices I've just mentioned, discounts apply to children and those aged 24 or under. So there we go. That was our Eiffel Tower experience. 
we also decided to walk the Champs-Élysées, which is nearly 2 k's long, 1.9 kilometres, 70 metres wide, most famous boulevard in Paris, starting at the Arc de Triomphe. Would you ever ride a bike down it? Would I? Yeah. I don't know. I, I know I, it's 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 the traditional ending, of course, of the Tour de France. Is yeah. is is the I, cyclists head, heading down it? Exactly. I don't know if I'd ever be game. I reckon it'd be fantastic to do that. I mean, why not? Well, and, if you could do it on a day where there was no traffic, yeah. But I, I don't think you could do it on a day where there was traffic. Yeah, I, I mean, it, there, there is a lot of traffic. Yeah. No question about that. But I mean, there's a lot of traffic in most places in the world. So I don't think the Champs Elysees is an exception. It's famous, of course, for its theatres and cafes and luxury shops and for the military parade that takes place each year on the avenue on the 14th of July to celebrate Bastille Day. And the name is French for Elysian Field, the paradise for dead heroes in Greek mythology. That's where Champs-Élysées comes on. And you think about the Champs-Élysées and its gardens, originally laid out in 1667 although it did not actually take the name Champs-Élysées until 1709. So we, we walked up the Champs-Élysées, past the giant wheel, which stands exactly opposite the Arc de Triomphe, making for some rather spectacular photography, and then we moved on to the Louvre. So the world's most visited museum. Of course, you've got the world's most visited structure and the world's most visited museum. We're talking about something like 10 million visitors a year to the Louvre. That's amazing, displaying nearly 35,000 objects from prehistory to today in an area of more than 60,000 square metres. If you walk the Louvre, you know you will have walked. I tell you something, <laughs> it is, it is a, there's a lot to see and a lot to do. Museums housed in the Louvre Palace, originally built as a fortress in the late 12th century under Philip II. Remnants of the fortress are visible in the basement of the museum. The building was extended many times to form the present Louvre Palace. In 1682, Louis IV chose the Palace of Versailles for his household and he left the Louvre primarily as a place to display the royal collection, including from 1692 a collection of ancient Greek and Roman sculpture. The museum itself opened on the 10th of August 1793 with an exhibition of 537 paintings, the majority of the works being royal and confiscated church property. So that's when it was, that was back then, 1793. The Louvre's got four floors, covers many magnificent buildings. To see everything would literally take you days and days. I mean, I've said 35,000 objects or nearly. Fortunately, the plan and information guide not only gives you a layout of the place, but six highlights on each floor. I thought that was a really good one. If you have got a limited time, that's probably what you should be doing, including Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, the Venus de Milo and winged victory sculptures and Napoleon III's remarkably ostentatious apartments. That's to name but a few. So that's exactly what we did over about three or four hours. That's how long we had to spend at the Louvre. So just remember, get your plan and information guide have a look at the highlights, see whether that's what you want to see. The museum split into a series of collections covering Near Eastern antiquities, Egyptian antiquities, Greek, Etruscan and Roman antiques, the Eastern Mediterranean and the Roman Empire, Islamic art, decorative arts, graphic arts, 
European paintings from the mid-13th to the mid-19th centuries, as well as the history of the Louvre and the arts of Africa, Asia, Oceania and the Americas. And then you also have the, uh, another museum which houses a series of collections related to the French painter and the Tuileries Garden, the largest and oldest public garden in Paris. So that's what confronts you. And if you wanted to be there for four or five days, you probably still wouldn't get through it all at a leisurely pace. I mean, that, was, that, was my, that was my next question was going to be, how long do you actually need to do the Louvre properly? Look, I, would have, I honestly would have thought at least three days and then you would still not be seeing everything. Mm. I mean, it's, it's that big. But uh, lovely, absolutely one of the great experiences. It really is. I mean, to see the Mona Lisa, I, 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 I mean, I know it's much smaller than some people think, but it's still special, very, very special. And I, I, I remember I was thinking that when I first saw it. This time I didn't think that, having seen it a few years earlier. Uh, I, and and the, the crowds are just as just as thick now as they were then. I mean, it is the Mona Lisa, you know, arguably the most famous painting in the world. So it was great. It was really good, and, and I loved – I mean, there was lots of other great things that I saw. I, the Venus de Milo, things of that nature were very, very, very good. Just to be in the company of these things uh, rather than just seeing them on film or in, in some other you – know, in a photographic form, to sort of be there in front of it, you know it's the original, all of those sorts of things. And, and again, you get that, do you get that moment where you, you round a corner and suddenly you see something like, like say, the Venus de Milo and you just get completely taken aback? Many, many times. In the Louvre, there's just so many things that are... And, I mean, we've seen some wonderful museums in our, our European journeys in particular, but not just in Europe, elsewhere as well. But, I mean, the, the, the Louvre is the Louvre is the Louvre and you kind of pinch yourself that you're there. So... It's it's you, you have to you have to build that into your trip to Paris. We had uh, dinner at a at a two for one pizza restaurant in Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. A so, two for one pizza restaurant. Yeah, I, I, I'd not seen that before, but there you go. So you got a couple of medium sized pizzas that my wife and I I ate for a, oh, a relatively paltry sum. I think we got a couple of pizzas for uh, under twenty five Australian dollars. That's I not bad. Were, Pretty, pretty well in Paris. Again, uh, I remember eating pizza in Paris because the place we stopped stopped for dinner, I can't remember the name of the place now, but we stopped for, for dinner in Paris. We had a table on the, on the, on the footpath. And, and I don't know whether you experienced the, the sidewalk cafe uh, culture in, in Paris because you were there in the snow time, but we were there in April. And the, 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 just the way that every cafe, every restaurant has the tables out on the footpath there. We were eating at a... uh, We had tables just outside uh, the restaurant and the kitchen, instead of being tucked away at the back of this place, of this pizza restaurant, the kitchen was right in the front so that passing pedestrians and indeed people like us who were lucky enough to have a seat just outside the kitchen could see the pizzas being made, including the chef putting on a magnificent shelf, tossing the dough, the spitting <laughs> dough up in the air to flatten nice. the disc. It was magnificent entertainment. And the smell. The uh, smell must have been nice. Yeah, exactly. It just adds to, exponentially to the, to the whole eating experience. Here, here for that. I, I, I think that's, that's the way to – it's not just uh, – it's many senses that are being used when you're, when you're eating, when you're masticating. Look, uh, we took – by the way, three of the four tours available on the Paris open-top hop-on-hop-off bus operated by Paris City Vision. 
spoken a lot about the importance of seeing a city initially and then perhaps going back to explore it. This, this is a great way to do it. Paris City Visions, open top, hop on, hop off bus. Wonderful way to get our bearings, to get to appreciate the natural beauty and architectural wonders of this great, great city, city of lights. The, the shortest of these circuits is about an hour and the longest is two hours, to give you an idea of the four tours. We went to Notre Dame, the cathedral, which is it's French for Our Lady of Paris, widely considered to be one of the finest examples of French Gothic architecture, among the largest and most well-known churches in the world, of course, Notre Dame. The naturalism of its sculptures and stained glass are some of the features, quite spectacular. Construction began in 1163 and essentially completed in 1345. So what's that? about 182 years to get the cathedral built, the Notre Dame Cathedral. It, it's, look, it's the parish that contains the official chair of the Archbishop of Paris. Among its treasures are the purported crown of thorns worn by Jesus, a fragment of the cross upon which he was put to death and one of the nails used to secure him. Did you know that? I know that. I saw them, and I still have questions. But anyway. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I said purported crown of yeah. thorns. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I wish them luck if it's the, with the crown of thorns. The one that got to, the one that got me was a, a piece of the cross because I think if you actually went around the world and gathered up every piece of the every uh, piece of wood that was purported to be from the cross that Christ was crucified on. Um, you'd wind up with enough wood to perhaps account for a small deciduous forest. <laughs> uh, well, in the 1790s, Notre Dame was attacked during a radical phase of the French Revolution. Much of its religious imagery was damaged or destroyed, and an extensive renovation began in 1845. So as I say, that was the 1790s. And a project of further restoration and maintenance started in 1991. So there you go, you've, you've had a number of restoration campaigns. It's also got a really spectacular organ with 7,774 pipes and 10 bells. The largest weighs over 13 tonnes. So that is one hell of a bell. That, that's a big bell. It's a big bell. You'd and, get a hunchback if you tried to ring that too many times. Yeah, absolutely. And because we'd seen Notre Dame, of course, we had to see Sacre-Cœur. So we caught the underground to Montmartre. What a view of Sacre-Cœur you get when you round the corner and look up the hill, absolutely magical. And it's, it's, the, the Sacre-Cœur is built of travertine stone. It was built between 1875 and 1914 on the Hill of Martyrs. Montmartre, that's what, it's, what mm. Mont means, which was the place where St. Denis, the first bishop of Paris, was decapitated for his faith. And Sacre-Cœur, which means the Sacred Heart Basilica, was consecrated in 1919 and inaugurated in 1923. The ceiling is decorated with the largest mosaic in France, measures about just under 500 square metres, 475 square metres to be exact. Apart from visiting and admiring the church, we also went down to the crypt and climbed nearly 300 steps to get to the top of the basilica, which offers spectacular 360-degree views of Paris. I remember so the, that view. It is absolutely stunning. Isn't isn't it? it? I mean, unlike the Eiffel Tower and Arc de Triomphe, though, the day we went, when we were there, we were two of only six people at the top. Really? 
Yeah, I was just... Well, bear in mind it was, was mid-winter. Oh, OK, but, fair enough. Because, again, what I remember being there and the crowds were as thick as anything. Mm. This is the, th- th- these are one of the benefits as well as being able to sort of go... Well, don a pair of ice skates and go into the Eiffel Tower during winter. Obviously, there are not as many tourists around. So that was at, to our great advantage. I thought Sacre Coeur was, was absolute... Both Sacre Coeur and, and Notre Dame should be seen. No, no question about that. The talking about things to be seen, the Palace of Versailles. Did you go there? Uh, we went past. We didn't. We didn't do an, an, an interior. Well, ornate, opulent, over the top. Call it what you will. There's nothing quite like the Palace of Versailles. We were treated to a chaperoned visit there. We we took a tour from Paris, twenty kilometres. It's uh, from Paris to inspect the seventeen apartments, including the state apartments of the King and Queen, the Hall of Mirrors, and the King's Chamber not to forget the magnificent gardens that form part of a not-to-be-forgotten experience. The Chateau de Versailles, which has been on UNESCO's World Heritage List for 30 years, is one of the most beautiful achievements of 18th-century French art. And the site began as Louis XIII's hunting lodge before his son, Louis XIV, transformed and expanded it, moving the court and government of France to Versailles as I've mentioned earlier when we were talking about the Louvre, in 1682. So that's when the court and government were moved to Versailles. Now, each of the three French kings who lived there until the French Revolution added improvements to make it even more beautiful. And in 1661, Louis XIV commissioned a person called André Lenotre with a design and laying out the gardens of Versailles which in his view were just as important as the chateau. The works were undertaken at the same time as those for the palace. They took 40 years to complete. When the chateau was built, Versailles was just a country village. And today, of course, it's a wealthy suburb of Paris, southwest of the French capital. The court of Versailles was the centre of political power in France from 1682 when, as I mentioned, Louis XIV moved from Paris, until the royal family was forced to return to the capital in October 1789. So 107 years later, after the beginning of the French Revolution. So Versailles is therefore famous not only as a building, but as a symbol of the system of absolute monarchy or unrestricted political power over the state and its people of the old regime. Really, again, if you have not seen it, we saw it when we were there last time as well, It is just so ornate, quite extraordinary. Talking about things that are special, the Paris Opera House. The plan to build a new Paris Opera House was part of a sweeping urban renewal scheme that was the brainchild of Napoleon III. The emperor had put Baron Haussmann, prefect of the Seine, in charge of rebuilding huge swathes of the city, especially the business and finance district. As early as 1858... Baron Haussmann decided where to locate the future theatre intended to replace a smaller one, which had become too small. On the 29th of December, 1860, a competition took place to select the man who'd designed the new opera house, as it was called at the time. Great architects participated in the contest. Five of the 171 proposals submitted to the jury commanded its attention. And in the end, they unanimously voted for the one by Charles Garnier, a 35-year-old unknown who hardly had any buildings to his credit. 
And on the 6th of June, 1861, Garnier was officially appointed the Opera House's architect. After he won the competition, Garnier travelled Europe studying the proportions, stage facilities and architecture of performance halls. He became an expert on theatre design. He even wrote a book on the topic in 1871. As I say, he was appointed the Opera House's architect in 1861. And on the 5th of January, 1875... Marshall McMahon Garnier's new opera house, the 13th since Louis XIV founded the institution in 1669, was inaugurated. The auditorium has 2,156 seats. The stage was considered the world's biggest at the time. And Garnier had called upon France's finest craftsmen, painters and sculptors. His functional, exuberant, eclectic, bold design and decorative scheme, both inside and out, met with immediate acclaim. His masterpiece was hailed as one of the world's most grandiose Italian-style theatres. So in this case, unlike the Eiffel Tower, they were lauding Garnier straight away. A series of refurbishment campaigns since 1996 has restored the Opera House to its original glory, splendour and lavishness really is quite a magnificent building. We, we took a shuttle coach from our hotel to Charles de Gaulle Airport before flying from Paris to London with British Airways, staying on the ground for about three hours and then flying on to Hong Kong with British Airways. We had had, what, four or five days in Paris. I wish we had four or five weeks in Paris. It was just a splendid experience. We were there after the, the shocking incidents of Charlie Hebdo, remember that, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. There was a lot of security. We felt totally safe. We really did. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult because it's so – it hurts me so much, and you can imagine how much it hurts the people who live in Paris, that one of the great cities in the world is being targeted so frequently and, again, has been, of course, since we were there many times. And, and – it, it, it's horrible. I mean, you speak to people and they say, look, we, we don't want to travel. We're, we're just too fearful. Unfortunately, the world in which we live, it can happen anywhere at any time. And a large, well, there's a large number of people who say, well, we're not going to be dictated to by anybody and we're going to continue our travels. It, it's very difficult for you and I to be able to say to people what they should do. Obviously, you've got to feel safe getting onto a plane. You've got to feel safe landing wherever you land. But, gee, if it causes people not to travel, we're living in a pretty pretty ugly environment, are we not, Chris? I'll go further than that, Alex. If you choose not to travel on the chance that a, ter a terrorist attack may happen at your destination, then the bastards win. Yeah, it's, look, it's very difficult because, God forbid, something does happen, you know, you, what you, and you, you get maimed or you die... I understand why people make that decision. I don't think anybody can tell them not to. But for you and I, for whom travel is such an important part of our lives, it's it's unfathomable that that yeah, I would I would allow anybody to dictate to me that I can't go somewhere. No, but I wouldn't I wouldn't go to Aleppo. I wouldn't go to hmm. Syria. I would even think twice about going to. Well, I wouldn't go to Zimbabwe for, as another example. There are, no, par there well, are parts of Asia that, I wouldn't go to. But, but you've got to be sensible about it, Chris. I mean, I, that's why the, you know, the, the Department of Foreign Affairs has a website. Exactly. That's why you go there and, you know, when they, when they say, well, only go there if it's essential business, 
they're not just kidding by saying that. You know, but most of the time you can travel safely to places unlike those that you've just stated. Places in Europe, most of the places... I mean, I don't know, would you go to Turkey now, for example? I probably wouldn't. Uh, I just think Turkey is a place where it really is starting to get to to, to be very dangerous to be in. But again, I, I have a, a sort of rule of thumb. Anywhere where there's been a coup or an attempted coup in recent history, I try and stay clear of, which is why, again, Thailand, I know a lot of people have a lot of love for Thailand. It's not somewhere that I particularly want to go to. Uh, and again, it's not so much fearing for my safety. It's more the being there while something happens. You get stuck Yes. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not fear, fear so much fearful of safety. You've got to be horrendously unlucky for something to actually impact on your safety. But just to be stuck somewhere uh, would not be fun for mine. I understand. Well, look, next week we will do Hong Kong, and folks, go along, go to Paris. It is a great, great, grand city. Absolutely lives up to all its billing. In case you've built up in your mind. You're not going to be disappointed. Can I share one last Paris story before we wrap up? Oh, please do. Um, You didn't do a river cruise, did you? No, we didn't on this occasion. River cruises in Paris are are interesting because, um, look, if you get on a river cruise with... How do we put this delicately? A lot of Americans on board. Somehow Mm -hmm. the word seems to get out to some of the, the locals that there are a lot of Americans on board your tour boat. Is that so? Yeah, okay. and, and uh, we had the delightful experience of approximately a dozen Frenchmen bearing their backsides at <laughs> oh, no. our tour boat as it went past and yelling none too complimentary things to the Americans on board. We, being Australians, thought it was absolutely hilarious, but uh, yeah, the Americans were not quite as impressed. Oh, uh, really? Uh, well, so they were mooning the Americans, eh? Were they? That's nice. I, I, remember I saw a dozen that... full moons in Paris on one night. Uh, well, I remember being involved in that activity as a callow youth uh, quite a number of decades ago now. So nothing has changed. Boys will be boys. What a lovely note to end travel first on for this week. Folks, tune in again in seven days' time, maybe even less, and we'll have some more offerings on the wild journey of life. Chris, been a pleasure to be with you. Cheers, Alex. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to Travel First. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. From Audioboom comes Covert. A new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.